Good morning. My name is Peter, and I am one of the pastors here. And before I preach, I want to introduce our storyteller for the day, Sean Davis. I don't know him very well. Um, I know some really deep and true things about him. I know very little about his other life. <laughs> um, but here's one thing I wanted to share with you about him, is that he has been on a sincere journey in life. And I really appreciate that he's a... a a sojourner and uh, asking questions and finding answers. So, uh, Sean, come on up and tell us a little bit about a piece of your journey. Good morning, everyone. I can get a bit wordy, so I had to type this all out so I didn't go astray. So uh, for those who don't know or recognize me, my name is Sean Davis, and um, I'm sure many of you didn't grow, uh, watch me grow up in the church, so there's a few things I should let you know uh, for my story to make much sense at all. Um, the first thing you should know is that uh, Tim Davis, who I'm sure many more of you do know, uh, first became a father when he met me and my mother. We were living in South Africa, and when he married her, he adopted me as well. And if there's such a thing as a, a dad lottery, I couldn't have played better numbers. But children are still inquisitive and they notice things. And despite the blessings that God had given me, giving me dad and Ian and Megan as well, um, I grew up with a bit of a confused sense of how I myself came to be and fit into the world. Um, like I said, kids notice things, but they make up stories as well, so I was able to notice things faster than I was able to put the dots together or figure out the right ways to ask questions. And one of the first things I remember seeing that made me go, hmm, was a photo of my parents' wedding. And in that photo, there was a little boy in a tuxedo with an iconic blonde bowl cut. And it looked a lot like my blonde bowl cut, so I asked, you know, you know, after some inquiry, it turned out that that little boy was me. And uh, this ran contrary to the uh, running theories on the schoolyard, which was that first comes love, then comes marriage, <laughs> then comes the baby in the baby carriage. I said, you know, I like your rhyme, but in my life, I think it went something more like, first was mom, then was Sean, then dad said, try this tux on. So, I knew my dad was my dad, but I also knew that he wasn't a dad like the other kids had. Um, and I figured I must have had a biological dad because, well, if you don't have a biological dad, religions get made about you and there wasn't one about me yet, so. <laughs> in, my in my imaginative mind, I decided to think that, uh, or conclude rather, that whoever this guy must have been, he must have been a real jerk. And that's that. You know, life was better this way. And there's a sense of, uh, I didn't want to rock the boat or open up a return to sender by clause or anything like that. You know, I'd, when you win the lottery, you don't go and play your, your winnings at the craps table. So in my young mind, that's how I'd, I'd box myself in from figuring these things out. Um, the question remained. Who was this guy? What happened to him? What did he do? And where did I come from? By the time I graduated high school, I still had a pretty lingering restlessness to evade the need to ask this question and, of course, to figure out what I wanted to do after high school. So I pitched the idea of volunteering at a Christian camp on New in New Zealand. And amazingly, mom and dad supported the idea. So before too long, we were taking our last family photo in the driveway before dropping me off at the airport. And um, I'm basically going to skip the entire stay in New Zealand right up until the end when, <clears throat> sorry, I turned 12 there for a second, um, when I got a call from mom, which was strange because she's, for those of you who know my mom, she's not a very chatty lady. So to get a call from Lee is very much out of the ordinary. And so I knew it was going to be either very good or very bad or potentially both. Um, 
I'm going to paraphrase the phone call because it was such a blur that I don't remember much of it. Her voice was strained and she was already choking through tears, but she told me that apparently in the last photo we took in the driveway as a family, the, the pose that I had and the smile on my face reminded her very much of my biological father. And this rekindled in her a desire to try to re retie the, the bonds that had been broken. Um, she went on to tell me that as, as if she knew the uh, imaginations and lies that I had been carrying, that he hadn't abandoned us. Her older brother and only sibling at the time, or only sibling ever, Yaku, had died some months before meeting him. He was a police officer named JP, which was short for Juan Pierre. He was neither Spanish nor French, which made as much sense as the rest of this story did at the time. <laughs> My grandmother, who had been beaten by police officers who had came to conscript her dead son when they thought she was hiding him, adored the idea of having a new little baby boy in the family, but couldn't bring herself to trust this man. She went on to tell me that he even went on to take a more risky position working as a border patrol agent. And with the money that he earned from that job, he bought a small property and built, his, built a small house for me and my mom. But none of it was enough to convince my grandmother at the time that this was a trustworthy man. And so, regrettably and tragically, I'd say, she had a fraudulent restraining order placed against him. And legally speaking, that was the end of it. Mom's search soon led her to discover an old article that told her where he currently was. On August 19, 2004, he was driving an employee of his home when a truck rammed into his at an intersection. Um, his body flew out the windshield, and before he could grab his firearm, four men, five men sh climbed out of the truck and shot him dead in the street. Then she moved on. But Sean, that's not all I found out. And that's when she told me that before he passed away, he had another son named John Luke. Again, I'm paraphrasing most of this, but that phone call was probably the most confusing telenovela of my life so far. And I went back inside with such a daze just trying to digest most of this. You know, I was traveling with uh, my girlfriend at the time and came in and said, I just found out my father died, but not my dad but 10 years ago, and I have a new brother, and what was for dinner? <laughs> and it's, it's, there's not much you can really do in, the, in the, the minutes following that. But eventually, the week before my freshman year, I got the chance to go and visit my brother and his family in Cape Town. And this is where God led me through, through and out of every single one of my childhood fears, questions, and worries about fitting in and being cared for in a way that only his timing could have provided. I was able to meet my brother, and he's an amazing young man with a much better emotional resourcefulness and mature faith than I had at his age. His mom has gotten married to a great man named, a great British guy named Ozzy, and has their own son together as well. She was able to tell me more and more as the, as the week went on and in the years since about what a humble and hardworking man JP was. She was able to take me and my brother to his grave and even to the intersection where he was gunned down. But in what I think is my favorite wink and nod from the Lord, reminding me that we're all in the palm of his hand and that, he never leaves, that he's never left my side, I was able to stay in the very house that JP built for me and his other son, John Luke, and I was able to sleep in the bedroom that he had made for us. And that's the story of how Sean came to have two dads. The, uh, our scripture reading for today, I'm sure you still remember that my name is Sean, um, and uh, we're going to be reading from the book of John, so please follow along in your Bible and use the screens, or use the screens. I'll be reading from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 in the English Standard Version. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Sean Davis, what a story. We are still in the series, uh, Son of God, in the book of John, and we're sort of exploring the person and purpose of God in the person of Jesus, uh, the incarnate. And today, uh, we're going to see if we can understand the divine pattern and purpose that we sort of bump up against on a regular basis. Uh, recently, I was in a car accident. This was last week. And it was my fault. And, uh, you know, I struggled with this sort of emotionally because I felt so bad. And I kept thinking about my oldest child who's going to start driving next year. And because uh, the, the girl's car that I had hit was a young woman. And I kept seeing my daughter's face on her. You know, what would, she do? what would my daughter do if she was in a car accident? And would she have the mental and emotional sort of wherewithal at that moment to be able to process what happened and what to do next? And, and so I felt a lot of compassion for her. Uh, I took full responsibility, and I kept thinking about it, and I, we exchanged information. I called the police. They told me to deal with it because there was nobody injured, and we weren't blocking traffic, and it was just a fender bender. So uh, after we got home, I had all our information. I did what all of us would do after we meet a stranger, which is I looked her up on Facebook. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, she posted about the accident. She put up a picture of my car and a picture of her car. And she said, oh, another accident. And turns out just the day before, somebody had rear-ended her. And then a week before, somebody had broken into her car and stolen the bag, the one bag that was in the car, which was her gym clothes. I know this because I stalked her on Facebook. <laughs> it all happened in the span of one week. And so uh, there's a narrative forming about her to herself that she's forming about herself. And, and the friends who commented, there were, at the time I checked, there were about 20 comments because these are three posts in a row. First was the break-in, a picture of the shattered glass all over the inside of her car, and then a picture of her rear bumper, and then now a picture of my car and her car. Um, and the comments, the far majority of almost all of them, started articulating a certain narrative that formed in their head about her, which was, remind me to never get in the car with you. That was one of the comments. Another one was, why does the universe hate you so much? And it just went on like this, and people sort of took cues from those early comments, and everybody had sort of this narrative about this victim. And I felt horrible, and I wanted to come to her rescue and say, actually, it was me, it was 100% my fault, all of you are jerks. <laughs> but then I'd have to admit implicitly that I was stalking her, so <laughs> I couldn't do that. God's pattern and purpose here on earth is to use 
negative things, to use painful things, to use suffering, to use accidents, to use mistakes, to use seasons of hardship, to use illness, to use tragedy, to use natural disaster, to use anything and everything is what Romans says, in all things. Somehow God finds a way through his power and love to use everything for the good in our lives. This is God's promise to us. God's not the author of evil. He never, ever authors evil. But he uses all things, including evil things, including painful things, to work in our lives. And the point of today's sermon is that his goal always is good wine as opposed to bad wine that he wants us to become good wine that's ready to be poured out and enjoyed and then from the mouths of those who consume the wine, praise God to give glory back to him. This is God's sole purpose in your life. God's purpose is not to help you get wealthy and healthy. Now that may happen and honestly, I want all of it. I want God to work in my life while I am wealthy and healthy. And if at all possible, I want to be just wealthy and healthy. But turns out life doesn't let me escape. You know, I always kind of think of myself from a biased self perspective as a unique one, as the exception, as a special one. Everybody else are just other people. But to other people, I'm just other people. So things happen to other people, which means things happen to me. Right? Right? And God's going to use everything to work in my life for the good. Now, there's a huge difference between that poor girl's Facebook friend's narrative when negative things happen and what a Christian is asked to believe is happening. Two different ways, very different ways to define reality. What's really happening? What's the final statement, the verdict Who gets to, you know, slam down the hammer, the gavel, and say, this is what it is. This is what's real. This is what's the most pervasive, most powerful, uh, most prevailing truth in your life. Who gets to decide what that narrative is? And Christians believe that it's God. And somehow through the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, we can claim this narrative as reality. Now, I want you to ask the question, especially if you're not a Christian here, what's the alternative narrative? Go ahead, share your most vulnerable moment or self with the world on social media and see what responses you get. You can sort of beta test this and see what the narratives, available narratives are out there. They may or may not be true, I don't know what you get. I know what she got, and I didn't like it. It violated some core belief I had about my world, that God's the king of it, God's lord of it. Anything can happen, and anything will happen somewhere. However, God has the final say. He is the redeemer. Redemption doesn't just happen. Redemption narratives don't just spin themselves. There is no sort of universal law making everything into something that's good. However, there is a person, a power, a love, an author that's writing the narrative. And if you are here as a Christian, this is what you are asked to believe. This is how you are asked to define reality. Car accident, that's not just a a mistake that somebody made. It's not just some tragedy. It's not just an inconvenience. It's not just a loss or a cost. That may be part of the narrative, but it's not the final story. The end story is redemption. All things working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. What do you believe? So we get into this story today, verse 11. Let me read it again. This 
the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Glory is the word weight. It's saying this is what Jesus is about. Manifested his glory, his defining reality, and his disciples therefore believed in him. Now, this verse is not the climax of the story, emotionally speaking. Uh, I think the emotional tension points are, there's probably two of them. Number one is Jesus and Mary, his mother, interacting. You know, you can feel the tension. Woman! (laughs) And actually, um, I studied this little part of it because it's such a weird dialogue, but it's very deliberate on Jesus' part. It's a way of distancing himself uh, as the son of Mary. He's saying, I'm now entering into a, 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 a fuller manifestation of who I really am, and that's the son of God, not son of Mary. And so he's not saying mother, he's saying woman. So there's a kind of a rebuke, not of her, but of this dynamic between them. He's saying we're going to expand our relationship. We're going to redefine it right here and now because something is happening. God is authoring this moment. So he says, woman. So that's probably the first tension. It's like, whoa, who talks to their mom like that? He does right now, very purposefully. And then number two uh, is when the master of the feast is tasting the wine. Imagine this as a movie. And you know what's happened because you're sort of the uh, omniscient you know, audience, the reader who knows everything. And so you know the water has been turned into wine. The master doesn't know what's happened yet. And he's about to put the ladle to his lips. And you feel the tension inside of you. What's going to happen? What does it taste like? Wh- what happened here? We're going to find out, right? So those are the two uh, emotional climaxes of the story. But this verse here is the point of the story, that the disciples believed in him. Something happened. Something happened, and the disciples believed in him. Uh, I have this quote uh, on my, in my office here at the church, and it says, Power is revealed. Not in striking hard and often, but in striking true. And so when this played out, something resonated inside of the disciples. Now, I doubt they understood what what was happening specifically. I don't think they knew that Jesus was referring to, as we'll get to, his death. But something true and good and right and I think kind of sort of like universal happened in this moment. And the disciples on some unconscious level, subconscious level, knew it, and it rang true. Because notice um, how John puts it. This, the first of his miracles, Jesus did at Cana. That's not what it says. It says this, the first of his signs. It's a symbol pointing to something else. This miracle wasn't just a raw demonstration of power, but it was a sign pointing to something else. It's important for us to know that in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus never does anything just to demonstrate his raw power. But every single miracle that's recorded that we've ever read about represents something else. It's a message. He's communicating something. It's a sign. And this is what John is saying. This is just the first of his signs, but there were many signs. In fact, everything he did were signs. In fact, I would add that all miracles ever are always signs. If they were just demonstrations of power, they would happen a lot more. But there is a narrative that God is building. And he uses miracles to point to something, a message. An example of this is when there were these friends who carved out a hole in the roof. They lowered their uh, paralytic friend down to set him in front of Jesus. And then the first words out of Jesus' mouth, instead of healing his uh, you know, injury, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Because that miracle that Jesus performed when he says, Take, you know, get up and walk, was not just a demonstration of power, but it was a sign, a symbol pointing to the divine right to forgive. All right? Jesus says, is it easier to forgive? 
or to uh, heal? And the answer is, it's much harder to forgive because healing just requires power, but to forgive, it required his life. And the uh, Jewish leaders are upset about the fact that Jesus forgave. Jesus did the harder thing, and they're upset. They should have been upset if he just healed and didn't forgive his sins, right? And so it's a sign of his forgiveness. And so all the miracles play out this way. And I want to push it one step further and say that all signs are placeholders, preludes, and shadows, reminders of truer things, ultimate things to come. And I would say, I would add even another layer to this and say, the work of God in your life every time are signs. So one way that I understand this anecdotal in my own life is this. Every time I pray for something and God seems to answer this prayer, I'm really surprised, I'm grateful, but then you know what happens? I move on. I forget that that ever happened. And the reason that happens that way is because that thing that I was so focused on isn't the point. It's a means for God to communicate, convey something else to me, something more eternal. So everything that feels urgent in the moment, once it's been addressed, we know that it passes and it becomes a prelude to something else. You wonder, what is the lesson I learned? Who am I becoming as a result of it? What is the more permanent? What is the legacy? What is this really about? And that's really our life, because our whole life here on earth, the Bible teaches, is just like mist. We're just sort of a, a leaf of grass. We're just a flower. We're up one day, and then we're gone the next day. Our existence here is just like vapor. You see it, but then you almost don't, and then it's gone. Because this life here and now is a prelude compared to the eternity that's coming. This life here that we live, everything that we white-knuckle and hold on to so tightly as if it were our life, actually turns out it's just a means, it's just a prelude, a shadow at best of truer things to come. And so not only is this miracle a sign, but all miracles are signs. And in fact, everything is a sign because ultimately life is not about you or me or life here as we know it now. It's all pointing to something else. And the Bible says actually, you know, the metaphor for it is there's a wedding coming, a wedding party that's coming. And we're going to be the bride. And Jesus is going to be the groom. And everything that we think of as so important now actually is just a means to Jesus that day, that final day. And this is what the Bible teaches, that in all things God works for the good towards that day, that beginning of eternity. I know everything is important. Everything has their place. I'm not undermining anything now. I'm not suggesting you should take things less seriously. But I'm saying God has a purpose and a plan for your life through the hardships, through the pain, through everything. And there's a pattern that's revealed in this first sign that we're going to look at. Uh, I was reminded of this because I went to a wedding recently. And, uh, you know, wedding vows are important. You know, and so I started writing a hypothetical wedding vow in my mind that I would like for God and I to make, since we're going to get married someday. And the uh, wedding vows go something like this. This is God making a vow to me. I promise to never contradict Peter ever. <laughs> I promise to coddle him by answering all of his wishes, whims, and prayers alike. I promise to never say no. I promise to never ever challenge him or his thinking or his ways or his habits. I promise to only praise him. I promise to only adore him. I promise to only hug him and kiss him and care for him in ways that he deems best. His wisdom shall be the final say, have the final say in all that we do as a couple. Now, I made that up. Obviously, it's not in the Bible, just in case. But I know it sounds silly. There's giggles, appropriately so. But 
I don't say that vow out loud, but that's the, working, that's the vow I'm working off of between me and God. And so anytime something less than pleasant happens, the first word out of my mouth is, why? Why do you break your wedding vows to me? How, how dare you let this happen? Why this inconvenience? Why this loss? Why this cost? How dare you contradict me and my wisdom? God is not going to ever promise that kind of thing to you or to me. Because we know that's not good for any marriage, any human marriage, let alone uh, union with God. How can God, knowing all that he knows, loving us as much as he does with all the power and means at his disposal, not do the things that are necessary to help us to grow and become the kinds of people even we ourselves want to be? if we can sort of bypass the means. And so um, we have two questions today. What's the meaning of this sign? And what does that mean for us? Now, this is rather simple, so we get through this really quick. Verse 3 and 4, up on the screens here, uh, you see the word hour that I highlighted for us. In the Bible... Uh, whenever Jesus talks about the hour, he's always talking about his death. Jesus isn't saying, my time to perform this sign hasn't come yet. He's saying, my hour of death hasn't come yet. Why are you asking me, inviting me into this sign right now? And notice how God used his mother Mary uh, to uh, initiate Jesus' ministry here. And the mom knew it because she's mom, and moms know things. So verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Why would she say that? Well, because she knows him. She's been with him for 30 years. She knows, she saw the twinkle in his eye or whatever, right? The, the, The thing that only moms know, just in a glance, she knows how your day was, right? And the answer is food. Please, mom, feed me. Uh, we see a similar kind of uh, linguistic, linguistic hint in the book of Matthew. And I loved uh, learning about this in the book of Matthew. Uh, but the word friend, whenever Jesus calls somebody friend, and he does so many times in the book of Matthew, he also actually is a reprimand. It's, he means enemy when he says friend. So he's using it ironically. Uh, and that's true uh, in Matthew. And the word hour in the book of John always represents his death. So now we already know that this sign is about his death. And then verse 6, now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Now there's a a detail here that you wouldn't write if this was fiction, right? Each holding 20 to 30 gallons. It's like, who cares? Well, we care because it was true. And it's a detail that uh, not a a novelist wouldn't put it in, in the way they wrote back then, but a historian would. And so we have that little detail here. And we know these jars were used for the ceremonial cleansing of sin. This is what we know. Water is a sign of cleansing. But notice how they describe the jars. The jars are huge. So you need a lot of water, 20 to 30 gallons each. It's a lot of water. And there are six of them. And notice they're jars, so they have to be refilled all the time. And what this uh, symbolizes is the insufficiency of these ceremonial jars to ever get the job done. We learned about this last week, how you can't actually ever get clean. All you ever do is transfer dirt from one place to another. Conservation of dirt, right? Dirt can't be destroyed. It can only be transferred. So that's what's happening here. And then verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. Here we have now finally the climax of the story. Jesus turns water into wine. A really uh, popular, well-known uh, symbol of a miracle. Water turned into wine. Now, it'd be really disappointing if Jesus turned wine into water. 
That would shut the party down. But Jesus dials up the volume on this party. He basically raises the roof here. Six times 30. That's a lot of gallons of wine. Just think about that detail. I'll let, I'll let that go where you need it to go. But he's saying now, finally, what water wasn't able to do, the wine of Jesus will be able to do. There's an efficacy, a sufficiency, and a completion, perfection of the wine of Jesus to be finally able to cleanse us. And last week we saw this. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that can take away the sin of the world. I look at the pain of my little kids. I can't do anything. I can only hope that somehow they feel better and somehow they're not permanently damaged. Somehow they make it in life. And yet it's Jesus who can enter the party or whatever scene in your life and take away the sin, the pain, the brokenness, the tragedy of it all. And Jesus is saying, I am the reality. My wine is the reality that these, the symbol of the jars and the water and the ceremony at best were only able to point to. At their shining best, they were just arrows pointing to the wine that was to come. The purpose of the water and the jars and the ceremony was never, ever to take away sin. It could never be done. You had to do it repeatedly all the time. And every time you did it, there was disappointment and somehow some lingering hope that finally one day the spot, the stain could be removed. And then verse 10, And said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And this idea of uh, saving the best for last is pointing to the finality of the work of Christ on the cross. Now there is no more a need for sacrifice. Jesus himself, out of his own lips, said, It is finished. Finally, we have good wine. If you are like me, and I think we are all this way, we have tried and have tasted of a lot of really, really bad wine. We have tried washing. We have tried cleansing. We have tried spot cleaning. We have tried giving baths to ourselves. We have tried to fix and heal and escape and cope and outrun. None of the attempts in our life to save ourselves, to cleanse ourselves, to fix our lives has helped. And we're left tempted to grasp at false narratives like, it's my fault. Nobody really cares. I have to look out for myself. Never get in the car with that person because they're full of bad luck. What other narratives do you have when all you've tried is ceremonial cleansing with water or tasting bad wine? All of the failures in life are, in fact, also signs pointing to Christ. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he's a famous theologian that has really helped shape theology in America. He was once asked uh, by someone who's trying to trap him, uh, what his most baseline, non-negotiable Christian belief was that can help heal society. And without even blinking, you know what R.C. Sproul's answer was? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They said, that's it? He said, yeah, that's all that matters in the final. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And this is why the disciples, I think, on a deep level recognize that Jesus came to turn finally water into wine and cleanse the world of its sin. And so they put their faith in him. They believed in him. Power is revealed, not in striking hard and often, but in striking true. Okay, application. Um, 
I came across this quote, and I really like it. It's from a book called Tight Corners in Pastoral Counseling uh, by actually a famous uh, pastor and psychologist uh, named Frank Lake. He's, uh, he's the one who pioneered pastoral counseling. Before Frank Lake, we didn't do pastoral counseling. Pastors didn't. They sort of left that to other people, and they sort of dispensed of theology and gave uh, counsel to people, moral counseling, but didn't delve into the psyche of people. Uh, But Frank Lake did that, and he has this really fascinating thing about one of the basic needs uh, of uh, human existence. He says this, the human need to have negative feelings, the reality of rage, anxiety, loneliness, or grief, should not be kept hidden or suppressed. In the realm of church groups, though, or really any other kind of group, these negative feelings are often seen as problematic and unattractive, even unacceptable. They are often, uh, in these circles, evidence of a lack of faith, a lack of self-esteem, a lack of personal grit. When we are this person, the suffering one in need of a listening ear, we are aware that this is a risk, putting ourselves out there like this. Sometimes, though, the pain is too great, and we just have to share. And instead of finding friends who have faced the same demons, we find strangers who seem not to know what we're talking about. There are awkward silences, darting glances, pained faces, a quick change of the subject. The effect of this put-down on the anxious sharer is devastating. They feel the group life they have come to depend on and their acceptance in it are tottering on the brink of disintegration. They have shared the worst that they fear to be true of themselves and the group quite plainly did not want to know. Summarizing this for us, Frank is saying, we all have pain in our life. And at certain points, the overwhelming need that we feel is to share about this pain to a group. And we find that when we share from our most vulnerable place, in the rawest form, Christians, groups in general, but Christians included, tend to have a way of getting anxious about the sharing. They don't know what to do with the pain, And the sharer feels devastated because the group does not know what to do. They don't have a sufficient narrative for the reality of pain in the world. And to be so proximate to the pain is deeply uncomfortable because they don't have a pain narrative that can hold this moment. And that's exactly what happened on the Facebook story that I told earlier. She was feeling really vulnerable because she got into another, a third car incident in one week. You just feel like a loser at that point. And then you reach out because you can't sense any other need except to share. And we've all been there. We have to share. It's too much. So we reach out to our support system, and the support system rejects us. It says, oh, that's awkward, that's uncomfortable, what are you doing? Why are you injecting this negativity? And then, one way or another, they reject her. And Frank is saying, this is what we do because we don't know what to do with pain. And Jesus says, I have a narrative for you. I came to this earth to absorb all of the pain and destruction, and negativity in the world into my eternal self, right? And I will take it away. I will restore. I will redeem. I will wipe every tear away. So without shame, without fear, without hesitancy, bring me the lame, bring bring me the broken, bring me the blind, bring me the poor, bring me the orphan and the widow, bring me the devastated, bring me the marginalized, bring them all to me. Whatever pain you have, whatever story you bring with you, I will absorb it into my divine narrative. And my narrative becomes your narrative. I promise that I will contradict you. I promise that I will challenge you. I promise there will be suffering. However, And yet, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, 
I will die for you. I will go before you so that in my death, your death is defeated. Because the same spirit that raised me from the dead will be working in your life, turning all things for the good. This is your narrative. And you can say with R.C. Sproul, Jesus loves me, this I know. Not because my life narrative is perfect, but because the Bible tells me so. And with the eyes of faith, you complete reality. Reality isn't what other people tell you. Reality isn't how you interpret things. Reality isn't what you feel on the inside. But reality is, through the eyes of faith, the redemptive narrative of God. It's God turning you, water, bad wine at best, into good wine, ready to be poured out in service of others to create communities that are safe and holy so that others can share their pain narratives. This is the magic, the beauty of church. The church will not be believed in until it is filled with good wine, until we are good wine, until God's narrative plays out as the only true and real story worth telling. As my prayer and conclusion, uh, we have these two verses I like to read for us. Luke 22, 20. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then Paul, one of us, 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. May you and I be good wine poured out for the redemption of the world. Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand as we close our worship service with this song of response. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. Whom you love, I'll love. How you serve, I'll serve. If this life I lose, I will follow. All your ways are good, all your ways are sure. I will trust in you alone, higher than my sights, high above my life. I will trust in you alone. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move, I will follow you, whom you love, I'll love, how you serve, I'll serve, if this life I lose, I will follow you. to the world, light unto my life. I will live for you alone. You're the one I seek, knowing I will find all I need.
today reminder that offering boxes are in the back on your way out and there's picnics in the park right after this and the zoo at one o'clock so please receive the benediction go in the name of the father son and holy spirit believing and having confidence that god can and will use all things in your life this week for your good and for his eternal purposes amen